Phoenix.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, comics, media, and more. Check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And I'm Jonah. And this is Phoenix.html, which is husbands talking more or less. And me too. Hey, so this is really exciting. It's so much fun because we've been doing this amazing show covering the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we've had this awesome guy over here, Jonah, who you might have remembered from Now and Again, as well as X's for Podcast. And now he's over here on Husbands, which makes so much sense because we love him so much and he's so great. Hey, cutie. How you doing, Joj? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm ready to talk about the Dark Phoenix saga. I think it was probably one of my favorite comic runs to read over on Nexus for Podcast. So I'm really excited to see how this was transitioned into the TV show and how it's going to be transitioned into the upcoming movie. I think that this is one of those situations where the adaptation did the best it could. To touch on what Jonah's talking about, today we're going to be taking a look at the first ever adaptation of the X-Men Phoenix saga in the X-Men animated TV series over on Fox Kids. It was five episodes dedicated to what mostly consisted of issues 97 to 108, followed by four episodes that covered kind of 125 and then sort of Uncanny X-Men 129 to 137. It's certainly quite an experience and we actually had read Dark Phoenix Saga, all three of us, along with Kyle from X's for Podcast, for the season one finale. And now we're here. Kevo, how does it feel to be taking a big step out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I'm excited. We've got a lot of things that we want to talk about, and I think it's a pretty linear move to go from the MCU that we've been talking about all these months to a- another very well-known, very beloved Marvel film project. The Marvel X-Verse has existed for nearly 20 years in film since the first one alone, and this adaptation takes us back 25, almost 30 years at this point. It just strikes me crazy that in 25 years, they've tried to adapt this same story so many times in so many different mediums. We've seen the adaptation of the Phoenix Saga in some form or another, initially in X-Men the Animated Series, we would see it again attempted in X-Men Evolution, but the series was canceled before it had a chance to reach that storyline, though they did show omens of the Phoenix to come. Wolverine and the X-Men, another animated series, did their own interpretation of the Phoenix, making it a central part of their story. The original X-Men film trilogy culminated in the Phoenix Saga, or the Dark Phoenix Saga, or the Gene Flies Around and Blows Shit Up with absolutely no plot whatsoever saga. Whatever that was. It really sucked. I mean, it was really bad. And now it looks like the new trilogy plus one is going to be Dark Phoenix. And it's really fascinating that they just can't stop retelling this story. Of course, the Phoenix is a limitlessly tapped 
entry in the Marvel Universe itself, where every writer seems to want to get their hands on it in one way or another. The Phoenix has shown up time and time again, and every time they say, this is it, the last Phoenix story, like a Phoenix, it comes back to take our money. (laughs) So, Jonah, you and I have been covering the Phoenix for so long at this point. It must feel very familiar to be stepping back into those shoes and playing around with Gene and Claremont and his toys. Yes and no. A lot of me watching these episodes were, yeah, kind of, but not really. I think Nico said it best that they did the best that they could, but I think there were certain details they included that were nice, but I think there were more crucial plot elements that they tend to skip over that were really necessary in what made the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga so successful and so iconic to comics. I agree. You can't really talk about any adaptation of the Phoenix Saga without discussing first the most central figure in the story, Jean Grey. Now, over on X's for Podcast, we spent four episodes dissecting Jean Grey, Phoenix Force, all of its apocrypha, and the many different manifestations, the Dark Phoenix Saga, in the comics. One of the things that we always came back to was that the most important element of the Dark Phoenix Saga is Jean's central struggle to keep her humanity in the face of godhood. That is, at the end of the day, what the Phoenix Saga should always be about. I'm going to be looking for that in every iteration of the Phoenix Saga that we're taking a look at in this series. It's going to be exciting to see whether or not these different runs capture that feeling. Now, it wouldn't be an HTML without a little bit of BTS. So, Kevo, do you have any interesting information for us about X-Men the Animated Series or its Phoenix and Dark Phoenix Saga adaptations? I said to myself I wasn't really going to do this on this one. I was going to be like a little more chill on Phoenix as a project, but you know me, I can't help like poking around a little bit. And frankly, like X-Men the Animated Series is incredibly fascinating. So much of late 80s, early 90s children's television boom is fascinating. Ways that it's affected pop culture, like it's unbelievable. The animated series all really began because in 1991, Margaret Loesch became head of Fox Children's Network, and having been a champion of Pride of the X-Men, a animated pilot for the franchise in 1989, she was very quick to set up an order for 14 episodes of X-Men. It's so interesting to hear you say Pride of the X-Men and that that was 1989. By that point, Kitty Pride had already moved over to Excalibur. If you're a fan of X's for Podcast, you've heard us talking about Excalibur's future leader, Captain Britain, running around over in Marvel UK. And it's unbelievable how Chris Claremont was able to constantly keep the heart of the X-Men narrative a teenage young woman. It was incredible. And at this point, Jubilee had taken a very fashionable center stage in her garish outfit with her out-of-control fireworks display, which is a much more visual 90s power than Kitty Pride's very passive phasing. It's very interesting because the central figure of X-Men is usually a powerful woman, whether it's Storm or Jean, or the exception to the rule, Scott Summers, there's usually some sort of iconic flashiness to it. Kitty Pride makes for a not very flashy lead. In that way, she's not super iconic, so it's not surprising to me that despite interest in Pride of the X-Men, it took a little bit longer to get the show on the air. And you know, it's funny to me that you bring up that specific contrast and how Jubilee's flashier mutant ability is fitting a lot more of the 90s theme because I would say that the people who were contracted to produce X-Men the animated series are known for a lot of flashy explosion franchises. Saban Entertainment 
who would go on to produce Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, as we all know and love. Now, I need to throw in a little bit of magic here, because it's almost like Jonah does it on purpose. Jonah, you are our resident Spider-Man expert, so what if I said to you that I have a weird bit of cross-media Spider-Man knowledge you might not have? Well, I'm excited. I might be a Spidey fanboy, but I don't know everything, and I'm always ready to learn more about my favorite boy in red and blue. What if I told you that Spider-Man gave birth to the Power Rangers? Wait, okay. So, what happened in the 1970s was Japan wanted to produce a Spider-Man TV show. One of the things they decided to give him was a giant spider mecha? This inspired creators to continue using that idea after they gave up the Spider-Man license. This eventually became the Sentai genre. So, as strange as it is, it seems like Marvel is constantly helping these Saban production team make their show. Well, and Haim Saban really credits the success of X-Men the Animated Series for helping convince Fox to take a chance on Power Rangers as an adaptation of Sentai for American audiences. His intention in creating the franchise was to do live-action comic books, what ultimately the MCU has spent over a decade accomplishing showing that sort of comic book action not in just animation but with live action one of the things that also comes to mind when i think of the x-men animated series and its origins is it was a really great way to get kids to buy the toys i remember growing up and well i had access to the comics so i recognized the characters i also had a number of who's who in the marvel universe style compendiums that helped me understand bigger pictures and ongoing arcs. So when my friends were like, oh yeah, I know Cable, he is in those couple of episodes and he's from the future and he fights Apocalypse, I would be like, yes, and he's also Scott and Jean's kid. And people would be like, wait, what? No, he's not. That's what? And I'd be like, okay, I even think they did that on the TV show. But it wasn't about making it wasn't about making character connections for people. It was about creating an identity for these characters so that when they would later adapt this material in new ways, these characters would already be in these people's minds. It's not surprising that a number of the characters that went on to get Netflix shows or appear in the Marvel Cinematic Universe had appeared in things like the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon just a few years earlier. And it's really interesting to me how much these adaptations to introduce the concepts to people have such a long-lasting impression. When we rewatched these episodes of X-Men the Animated Series, there are so many things that they got kind of wrong about the characters that adaptations have continued to get wrong about the characters sebastian shaw's mutant ability for example the way it's portrayed in the animated series is not very faithful to the comics but that is sort of faithful to the kevin bacon adaptation in 2011's x-men first class so it's interesting to see what things carry with the audience because this is how it reached such a general audience one of the things that's really interesting is Coming into this, I've seen every one of these goddamn X-Men movies way too many times. Kevo, I believe we've watched all of them together ourselves, the exception of one or two solo films. But Jonah, I think you've seen like one and a half of them. Yes, I believe I've seen two and maybe parts of other movies that combined make a half of a movie. But I haven't seen a lot of the X-Men, which is weird, because you would think me doing an X-Men podcast, I would be this super fanboy, and it was always something I grew up with. It's actually not the case. This is actually my first time seeing 
full episodes of the X-Men animated series, the one time I've ever seen an episode, I was in Canada and it was on in French, so I couldn't understand what was going on. But it's very fascinating to see something that I fell in love with now and reading the original source in the canon of the comics and what they had to do market-wise to make this a brand that can reach everyone because when you're making toys and you're making an animated series it's going to be geared slightly towards a younger audience and you have to market it that way so i can't be that upset at the details they get completely wrong because i have to realize who their target was and i need to ask are the details wrong or does this adaptation need to be a bit different i was the proudest daddy bull listening to you laying in bed telling kevo what things were changed and what was faithful and wrong. I had, you know, the greatest ever nerd daddy boner listening to the little X-Men expert super genius fan you've become. And I just couldn't help but notice as we were watching it that this was your first exposure to Gambit, to Rogue, to Beast as an X-Man. And it just kept, I just kept thinking this was not how I would have introduced you to Rogue. This sort of surface level read i think part of the problem too is there wasn't as much care put into faithful adaptation as there was just sort of cherry picking the things that they thought would translate best and be the most entertaining at the very beginning of when the show was being produced they were very much under the gun and way, way, way late and behind. There were some animation errors on the pilot that aired a month and a half late that were so glaring that it got, like, complaints to the network and had to be corrected in the following months. And the next episodes after that were also delayed by three months. It was really rushed into production. Yeah, I remember there was that time that somebody left a coffee cup in the background of a Savage Land scene. Oh, topical. I want to jump right in because you've both touched on something that I think are the strengths and weaknesses of this adaptation. I want to start with the Phoenix Saga, which they made five episodes. I think it's really interesting that this is the most faithful adaptation ever. This had Banshee and Moira, and it had Black Tom and Juggernaut and Lalandra and Deken, and it was just like a who's who of the Cockrum into Burn era of Uncanny X-Men. It was Chris Claremont's brain on display. Jonah, I know you've only had about a year with these characters, but you've clearly fallen in love with them. Uh, how was your reaction to seeing these characters all of a sudden given voices? I mean, you literally burst out laughing when Gambit started talking. I, I am so sorry, whoever that voice actor is, I apologize, but you did the most stereotypical Bayou accent I could have ever heard, and it was so funny because I'm not expecting it from Gambit's appearance. I knew that's where he was from, Nico told me, because I, I wanted to know, because I was like, oh, when is Gambit joined? What is, where is he from? And when Nico told me that, I was like, what? No, 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 no. Millennial gays would know this voice actor for Gambit as Dr. Michael from Queer as Folk. True, true. Huh. It also had a humongous impact on my formative years. It was so fascinating that they weren't afraid to keep peeling back layers of this story. I would go on to find out that this interpretation of Dark Xavier from the animated series is actually kind of a mashup of the version of Dark Xavier that we see in the fill-in flashback issue from 107, and also Dark Xavier from the Micronauts. So... 
it's a really interesting take on so much of this source material. Jonah, did you have a standout, I'm so glad they included it moment? I think my favorite moment from the comics, the the iconic page of Jean emerging from the water, screaming, I am Phoenix. How we got there wasn't exact, but including that amazing moment of that change of Jean from who she was to who she became, it was so nice to see that on the TV. It was really nice that that was a moment that got brought in. Did you have any moments where you were like, I how did they get rid of that? How did they change that? Uh, you know what? I have to say it's how the crystal was destroyed and how Dakon was defeated because it takes away a lot of the relationship between Gene and Storm in the comic, which is very different than the relationship between Gene and Storm in the TV show. And it takes away a little bit of Corsair. Corsair is kind of supposed to step up in this moment, and that's where Jean is supposed to realize that's Scott's father, and she's supposed to hold on to the secret because she doesn't know how she should be intervening with her love and his thought that his dad is dead. He, she doesn't know what to do about that. And it's a really interesting dynamic that and question that's posed to Jean, and they really just tried to expand upon it in an interesting way, but I don't think it hit the mark. Dakon wasn't that oppressively powerful. He didn't succeed in the way he succeeded in the show. So adding more villainous depth to that character, I don't think quite works as well because we're never going to see him again. And I would think you would save that for a a villain or a character that's more repeating. And I think my only other complaint about it is the personification of the Phoenix. When we were first introduced to the Phoenix and subsequent classics, and as we continued further down to what was eventually the Dark Phoenix saga, the way the Phoenix was personified, it was made to be make it seem like it was a separate entity from Jean from the get-go in the Phoenix saga and from the animated TV show. But that's not exactly how it was described in the comics. And it's not exactly how it was described a little bit past that either. So it was really jarring that they're making a separation that the phoenix isn't gene the phoenix is its own entity within gene what's interesting is at this point in time in marvel comics continuity that is the case so the animated series was designed to generate some version of a reflection of what canon was at the time for better or for worse taking into consideration retcons And, you know, I read the Dark Phoenix saga to participate in the X's for Podcast episode for it, but didn't read the issues that constitute Phoenix saga here on the animated series. So I'm not as familiar with how well it was adapted there, but I know that there are several elements that I recognized that were changed in the Dark Phoenix saga that I'm like, okay, that's because this character became more important. That's because this problem with the story that they realized after the fact. So it was really interesting to see it from that perspective. And it was really fun to watch the Phoenix saga adaptation, sort of with that outsider's perspective, not having really understood where the source material for those issues, how those developed. For my sake, one of the things I thought was the most interesting was how far they went out of their way to include as many random characters as they could. As a kid, I thought it was a real dedication to world building and giving me a million new characters in my mind play with. As an adult, I now realize how many of them I had action figures of and how few of them have very many lines of dialogue in the comics themselves. The inclusion of so many characters was likely to give the toy tie-in product designers many options to play with because 
I know I had a Chode figure. And that name. And that name. So many, though, of the Imperial Guard and Starjammers are just so over the top, and you just get their names in passing. Just the name Starjammers kind of, it sounds like a Looney Tunes astronaut group. I completely understand that. That is completely valid. I guess I'm thinking Space Jammers. I also think there's something about Corsair's Errol Flynn mustache that doesn't exactly translate to a modern audience. To me, he sort of seems like a roided out John Waters, not so much like a dashing pirate. I get that. Can we talk about the real person who pointed out in these animated series being Charles? Why is he so buff? Charles is always so buff in the comics, too. They constantly show him shirtless nowadays, and he's always, like, mad. And I'm like, good for Chuck. Interesting choice, for sure. I also thought it was interesting that they chose to introduce Banshee to Charles. Now, I appreciate Banshee being kind of like the elder statesman of the group, who's always like, I, Charles... I be here to help ye with your team because I used to be in the Irish Interpol IRA. Me lucky charms. And he plays a really supportive, emotional role to Charles in the comics when he's permitted to speak. Here, by introducing him to Charles for the first time and all of the other X-Men, it kind of makes Black Tom showing up really irritating because it's like this guy just showed up out of nowhere and then he just kind of goes, oh! <laughs> it's so fucking ridiculous and his like traffic cone style wings going Aah! but how else were they supposed to do it that's how bad she actually flies i would have had him emit kind of like an Aah! noise and permitted well, two sets of vocal cords no because benji does talk while he's flying at times so he that would have to be that that could be a case yeah so he should have just been like Aah! and then could fly well, this won't be the last time that we see an adaptation of Banshee or Banshee flying, so that's going to be exciting. Nor will it be the last time we see an adaptation of the Juggernaut. I'm going to be very clear, this show will not touch on the misogynistic and anti-feminist meme that has been generated around the Juggernaut, except to condemn it and point out that it is completely not okay and super duper dumb and fuck you all. I love Juggernaut when he's redeemed as an X-Man. It's happened two times and he gets a little best friend named Sammy the Fish Boy and I love Sammy the Fish Boy. Word up. Back to the Dark Phoenix saga. Kevo, were there any things that stood out to you as... Okay, I know as a fact this could not have possibly been how it happened. Can somebody please explain to me? Well, for one thing, those flashes that we get around the globe where we saw all of those outside characters like Captain Britain, is that like from the comic? One of the things that they used to love to do in 70s and 80s Marvel was have characters appear in a flash or in a cameo for one moment. Oftentimes, if something very magical happened in an issue of Uncanny X-Men, there would be a line that said, and around the world, mystics felt it. And it would cut to Agatha Harkness, and she'd be like, oh! And it would cut to Doctor Strange, and he would be like, oh! And it would cut to Spider-Man, and he'd be like, gee, Willikers, jipey, doop-dops! I have my spider sense all flaclamped, bonk! And that would be how it happened. You're not cutting a single word. Why did Spider-Man sound like a 1950s sitcom character? And I was like, golly gee willikers. Why did he have that vernacular? No, 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 no. I didn't have a problem with that vernacular. I I had a huge problem with bonk and a lot of the things on either side. But anyway, thank you. Question answered. Thwip Norp.
I definitely remember asking you questions, having questions the first time that we watched X-Men the Animated Series. I would recommend you talking a little bit about Lalandra and Charles and this Mr. Clean Bird Lady love affair. I think the most fascinating part of this is I went into it being very, yeah, Lalandra's cool here. She gets better later on. This most recent reread for the series made me fall in love. I think she's a dynamic, deep character. And her connection with Xavier is fascinating because it's this psychic touch across the stars. They felt each other's minds across space. And they shared this instant where they could understand each other's hearts completely. And there it grew and grew. And no amount of time and space or cultural genocide seems to be able to keep them apart for very long. And see, like, through most modern interpretations of the X-Men as I know it, namely the film franchise, there hasn't even been the slightest whisper of Lilandra, which is very interesting. I would at least expect some sort of, like, weird touch, like a director thinks it's funny for Patrick Stewart's Charles Xavier to have a lot of birds or something. Haha, ha, bird lady. But no, like, nothing about that character or the connection. I find birds sexy that was my movie xavier to my animated series xavier is always who, who me my x-men jonah i believe you called storm super extra i say that because you both made a very good point while we were watching it that if she doesn't go above and beyond naming her attacks and I summon the storms to make a typhoon, or whatever she does. She doesn't have much dialogue out of that. The Something I just noticed is they severely downplayed the role of Storm herself, in which seems like the show, not even just this specific, these two specific arcs, or just anything. It seems like Storm played a much more role to make way for the other characters. A lot of the development we got here was about Phoenix, not Jean, and that is unfortunate. That does bring me to the Dark Phoenix saga. Jean shows up on Muir Island with some nice homages to 125, although they did skip over my precious, precious Proteus. And then we just sort of rush into the Dark Phoenix saga narrative. We get more about the Hellfire Club, who showed up in a brief flash in the Phoenix Saga. The Inner Circle Club. Which is fair, as the high-ranking positions of the Hellfire Club are known as the Inner Circle. Jonah, you had been very attached to the Inner Circle. I remember that being one of the things you loved the most. How did you feel about the visual and audio representation of the Inner Circle Club? I understand this was a children's TV show, but the, as I'm going to call it, the nerf to Emma Frost's costume hurt a little. But I have to understand this is for children. She can't have her um, sexy dominatrix look strutting about. That's not, that's not acceptable. They don't want kids nerfing themselves to this TV show. No, but I think for the most part, I was really... I thought everything about it, just from what we got from the very beginning of this arc, the inner circle was done pretty well. I think I always pictured Emma a little more bitchy and a little more wispy, like a little bit higher pitched, as opposed to a little bit more deeper, raspier voice that she got. I don't think it was bad, and I don't think it detracted from this arc for me, but it was just a little shift, and I was like, okay, that wasn't my interpretation, but... I see where this kind of fits. And you know, for me, I always, when I picture Emma Frost's voice, uh, imagine a mix between Eartha Kitt and Martha Stewart. Yeah, okay. X-Men. Pull the lever, Sean. 
(laughs) (laughs) I really liked the increased role of Emma. Again, you know, since I was more familiar with the films than I was the comics before I came to you, I didn't really have a lot of knowledge of Emma Frost as a character to know how important she really is to the X-Verse. One of the things that's fascinating is the way Emma Frost is defined by her past. So much about the X-Men is supposed to be about evolution, but the X-Men gets really hung up on certain notions and certain eras of storytelling. For instance, Emma Frost is forever defined by her early villainous days. While Emma Frost had only about 10 appearances in her first 100 issues before she became a grey character. Everybody remembers when she put the X-Men in cages, like that's such a bad thing to do. Who hasn't? I constantly put Logan in a cage, so one of the things that becomes interesting is how Emma Frost's forever defined by her endless feud with Jean. There is that. Jonah, one of the things you and I both commented on was Colossus picking up a tree to throw it at Jean and Jean turning it into gold. I love that they found a way to include that despite not including Colossus in the form of having Rogue take his place. Were there any other really cool nods that you appreciated the visuals of? One of the things that I liked, and I think they did well for how they were telling it, was we get the the iconic pose of Wolverine pulling himself out of the sewers to go save the X-Men when he is dropped through all the floors and he's presumed dead and washed away. And we get Wolverine saving the day. And I was like, that was such a great include. That's exactly something iconic about that arc from the comics that they were able to transition pretty well. And it made me super happy. I was like, oh, we got it. And for the most part, I kind of liked the psychic fencing duel between Mastermind Jason Wingard, and Cyclops. Though Jean's increased role as villainous and betraying Scott takes away a lot of what the Dark Phoenix saga originally sought to do and how it ended in portraying Jean. And I think that was something, the direction they were trying to take it, that I don't think really was the direction they were should have taken it. Yeah, they made a lot of weird choices, even in the back end. I didn't like Handle Dazzler, for example, especially because, like, that even in specific, it wasn't needed. You didn't need to change her characterization that way. There are certain things you do and don't have to change. I respect them making Dabari uninhabited. I think they could have hit it a little bit less hard, because they definitely mentioned it, like, eight times. Uh, five in a row, and then three in a row, but still... I've developed major concussive disorder from the number of times they gallagher me in the head with the fact that, oh, I can't believe we're out here looking at this completely empty solar system. Maybe someday we'll be able to look at inhabited solar systems, but for right now, we are looking at this uninhabited solar system. It is basically a rock. Bird noise. Caw! Basically, That's and Gina then... her way. Ah, oh, nice. Yeah. So I respect that change. Obviously, there is another incredibly major retcon in the X-Men, the animated series adaptation of the Dark Phoenix saga. Specifically, um, she didn't die. Oh, did she not die? (laughs) Decidedly not. Oh, I need a life. JK, I can just take like a sixth from each of you, but then you'll each be a sixth dad. I just wanted to see if you would actually die for me. So I feel like an ass. And if y'all can just like spot me a few bucks, I'll bring back and we'll be square. I want you each to make a horcrux and put it in this little white lady. All right, everyone, roll a d20 and tell me what you get. That's how successful you are in 
reviving Jean. That's basically what she said. In Grant Morrison's new X-Men, the Phoenix and Jean Grey are discussed as two separate people, but they're discussed as two separate people fused into a singular consciousness and share a mind. They're one person. Which is why it is incredibly frustrating that it's depicted as though Phoenix puts Jean in off mode and puts her to bed. So I don't love so much of how they pull back their punch. Do you feel this was faithful to the story of the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga? No. And part of that is, it's as you said, having the discussion of them being separate entities takes away the main point of what the Dark Phoenix culminated to in that Jean is supposed to die a hero. And granted, the crimes of her as a Dark Phoenix in the animated series are much less severe than what she did in the comics, it could still hold up that Jean dies a hero. She makes a sacrifice, and she chooses the greater good of saving the universe as opposed to saving herself. But I didn't get that. It kind of felt like Chris Claremont's original ending, where Jean just gets a slap on the wrist and nothing really happens. There really wasn't almost a point to the Dark Phoenix saga in the animated series, because everyone is still alive and everyone is fine. Nothing big, nothing tragic happened. There was no consequence for the actual Dark Phoenix outside of causing a little bit of minor damage. So taking away so much of that agency of, okay, the Dark Phoenix is an actual threat, not just a maybe threat and maybe next time, it doesn't it doesn't hold that charm and that magic that it once was. It, it just feels so disheartening that it's like that's what they chose to go with kevo as somebody who read the dark phoenix saga where did you land on faithfulness to the spirit of phoenix the dark phoenix saga well i am looking at this whole phoenix.html project as which one of these projects so far has the most faithfully or closely adapted i was really pleasantly surprised to find how much of the x-men the animated series version is faithful it reminds me um like a decade ago i was writing a christmas carol inspired story so i did a bunch of research and read the original and watched a bunch of different versions and i was very pleasantly surprised to find that the muppet christmas carol is one of the most faithful adaptations of charles dickens a christmas carol it seems bizarre but it really follows a lot of the story the most faithfully of all the versions that i watched and you know there's a lot of in that same exact way there's a lot of kid things thrown in and i think it also benefited from the fact that they had already been retconning actually the connection between gene and phoenix in the comics so if anything the animated series was trying to be faithful to what the current dark phoenix saga had become and in that regard i do believe it was a success it introduced an entire generation of young sci-fi fantasy superhero action-loving minds to the narrative of Jean Grey. For all of the ways this one is deeply flawed, it is the closest structurally and in terms of actual pattern of events. And until we return to discuss more Phoenix, Jonah, I want to thank you so much for being our first ever guest host on HTML. There couldn't have been anybody else to do this with. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Jonah, where can everybody find you until you show up again? If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. If I'm not mistaken, I think you uh, host something over here on this network or something? Oh, I almost completely forgot. It's almost like I thought I was on my own podcast. 
yes, if you'd actually like to hear more of me and me and Nico and hear Kevo and our friend Kyle talk about the X-Men and the Uncanny Marvel Merry Mutants and their adventures and side adventures and all that good stuff, you can find us on X's for Podcasts and Uncanny X-Men Experience. Kevo, it feels so natural to be back here talking about Marvel Aviarad Productions owned by Fox. For now. For now. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, at Kevo Really. Also finding a whole assortment of crazy crap over on our brand new Facebook page, Husbands Talking More or Less on Facebook. You can also find a ton of my and your and our lovely co-workers, Taryn and Tori's super awesome, super cool, diverse, inclusive superhero comic book stories and art over at KidRideComics.com. And Nico, where can we find you? You can find me here on the Cage Club Network making Now and Again. We also have some really cool new projects coming up so keep an eye out for that you can also check me out on my instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n all right guys until we come back to take another look at gene incarnations we will see you guys the phoenix has eyes Caw! Caw!